Hello and welcome back to Over the Top, a great war podcast. We are here, folks. We're on part three of the Battle of the Ain and the final episode to this series. I don't care where I'm at. The first Battle of the Ain will end here. All good things must come to an end. But before I get into that, let me tell you what I'm drinking for this episode. My wife got me a bottle of Hudson Baby Bourbon Whiskey for Valentine's. I'm not a whiskey sommelier. I've never claimed to be an expert on the liquid, so I'm just giving you my own dumbass opinion. And my opinion is... Hmm. It's good. It's... uh... It's real good. Very drinkable. Not too harsh, but strong enough. Probably shouldn't mix it with anything. Just sip it straight up and enjoy. (laughs) That's my review. Now, just by that review alone, you've probably come to the the conclusion that I don't know crap about whiskey. And you're probably right. But I do like drinking whiskey, particularly bourbons. And I do think that I can tell when I'm drinking cheap versus good. Bullet bourbon has been my go-to for a little while now. And actually, I believe it's pronounced in Beulet. Could any of my French amis out there send me a note if I'm in the ballpark with that? Last time at the store getting a bottle, I decided to switch it up. So I got a bottle of Buffalo Trace. It's, It's been some time since I had the Trace and it seemed to be calling my name from the shelf. And I could tell immediately it was slightly more, more, mm, what's the word to describe it? Had, had more of a kick, I'll say that. It wasn't bad. Trace is good. But in my opinion, not as smooth as Bule. If I'm saying that right. It just had more of a twitch or punch to it, if you know what I'm saying. You know, there, there's whiskey folks who've turned whiskey drinking into some white tablecloth cloth fancy affair some real pinky in the air kind of stuff taking something simple and good and making it complicated whiskey doesn't need to be complicated i've heard people when they've described whiskey say that they can sniff out peaches dates cherries burnt sugar and all sorts of stuff i've even heard some guy say he could smell creme brulee creme brulee the fancy custard that that you hit with a spoon on the on the cup? Really? You know what? More power to you. Maybe you can. Maybe I'm the one living in another dimension or something because I've never smelled creme brulee while sniffing whiskey. But again, I'm a simple kind of man. Or at least I like to think I am. Anyway, back to Hudson Baby. It's good. It smells and tastes like a quality bourbon in my opinion. But for the price of the bottle, I would suggest making it a sipper and not a mixer. I think mixing it with Coke would be somewhat insulting. Just drink it over ice or straight up. Whatever is your pleasure. Or hell, mix it. It's your drink. Enjoy it the way you want. How about that? And a little whiskey drinking safety note. If you're sipping with the missus and you don't want no kids with those kisses, put a wrapper on that rascal and there won't be no hassle. And that's what I'm drinking for this episode. Amen. All right, enough about whiskey. You know why we're here, folks. On the last episode, we, 
Well, we didn't get too far with the Battle of the Aim, and that's because I had to make a decision. Do I make one long episode or do I break it up again? I made the decision to break it up and make part three, and for a good reason, I believe. To give you a quick recap, after the pullback from the Battle of the Marne, the German 1st and 2nd Army stopped at the River Aisne, did an about-face, and set up defensive positions. The BEF and the French, after giving chase, ran right into them, and the fight again was on. The main objective for the BEF and the French at this time was to gain control of the higher ground positions along several communes running along the river which the Germans had controlled. This was achieved at certain locations, but not without paying a high price and lives lost. The bodies continued to stack up on all sides. Sir John French and Joffre issued new orders to heavily entrench all the positions they currently held, and the Germans did the same. Trenches were growing in all directions and were being dug deeper. Men were working night and day under the constant danger of bullets and artillery just to improve their fighting positions. The Huns, seeing their enemy hard at work, said, Ich habe ein Idee. I have an idea. We still have the superior artillery. Let's shell them to hell while they're digging. And that's exactly what they did. The BEF and the French were being absolutely bombarded by the German siege mortar and other heavy guns. The Tommies and the Pailus had become overwhelmed by the constant shells raining down on them. Single shells were killing men by the dozen, or in some cases, by the dozens. Dueling battles of artillery had become a part of trench warfare right out the gate. But how could the BEF have successful counterfire if they couldn't see where they were at? If something wasn't done about this problem, they would be obliterated, and soon. And this is when the BEF brought in a new instrument from the Industrial Revolution into the war. Well, this wasn't really new because they had been using them. It's only now that this new modern weapon of war had become a crucial instrument to not only their survival at this point, but also an instrument which higher ups felt could win the war. I'm talking about aeroplanes. Yes, I know I've already mentioned them, and again, they have been used up to this point. However, now is when they really came to life. Now was the point when they were being put to the test. A BEF colonel describes the dire situation, saying, quote, They have 8-inch guns which fire an enormous shell, 2 feet 11 inches long. Yesterday, they knocked out one of our howitzer batteries in about 3 minutes. German aeroplanes signaling to direct the fire of the batteries. Some better cooperation between our flying men and the batteries is necessary, and we are trying to work this up. Lieutenant Colonel Stanley Maud, Headquarters, 3rd Corps. End quote. They were desperate. This was the only way the Brits could get an accurate location of the guns, or the closest to accurate as they could get at the time. Those destructive tubes of death needed to be shut down quickly. 
If planes hadn't been invented, the history of the Great War would have been written differently. Think about it. They were out of options. This was their only hope. Before this point, planes were used for reconnaissance to spot direction of the armies moving around in August. And think about this. It wouldn't be hard to spot a whole army or multiple armies moving along the western front from a plane in the summer sky. They spot them, which I'm sure is pretty obvious when you see a whole, see a whole army moving. Then they land and report to the generals the direction they were moving. Pretty straightforward and simple, right? Now the British Royal Flying Corps, or the RFC, which I'll refer to them from here on, they have a new job. They have to seek out and spot the positions of the siege mortars, quickly relay the whereabouts to their gun teams, so they could start counterfiring with effective shots. There's no taking your time. You're not just cruising around the friendly skies eating peanuts. This is very time sensitive. Every minute counts when troops on the ground are being slaughtered. And some might be saying, that too sounds straightforward and simple, but it really wasn't. Remember, the weather was changing for the worse, so they now had to fly lower. They didn't have the open summer French sky. They now had gray, cloudy, rainy, and windy sky to face. And it literally was in their face. This was open seating, if you know what I mean. They were also now being shot at from German defensive positions, which at a lower level, they made themselves an easier target. The Huns weren't dumb. They too had planes. They knew exactly what these pilots were up to because they were doing the same thing. And now that the soldiers are entrenched, they're harder to spot. They also have camouflaged their artillery with bushes, foliage, and straw. They even dug pits for them or hid them behind ridges. So for the pilots of the RFC, this wasn't just a simple get in the plane, spot their position, then land and report. This was going to take some skill and a whole lot of courage. I want you to get an understanding of the brass balls these pilots carry between their legs. Here's some things to consider. The first flight barely took place back in 1903 by the Wright brothers. That wasn't that long before 1914. Aeroplanes are still rather new and not much technology had been achieved from the first flight up until now. The first aircraft across the English Channel was the Blaroy 11, named after a French engineer, Louis Blaroy, in 1909. It was basically a wooden frame with wings and some canvas, and the engine had a tendency to explode when overheating. The pilots at the beginning of the war, when passing an enemy plane, would often wave, then take out their pistol and try shooting at each other. A, a flyby shooting in a wooden plane, flying with one hand, shooting with the other. you imagine what they were yelling at each other? Also, many pilots at the start of the war died just from the takeoff alone. These planes couldn't get enough speed to keep up with the momentum of flight and would nosedive into the earth. The race was on for new and improved planes. Bigger, better, machine guns were now being attached for future dogfights. The mission to relay intel has become much more difficult with anti-aircraft weapons, weather, and enemy planes. And all this with a low life expectancy. In fact, at the height of the war, the life expectancy for a pilot was only three weeks. 
and how the pilots are going to relay the location of the German artillery down to their own gun teams was basic at first. They will have an observer who will try to pinpoint the location on a map, then relay the position to their gun team. Eventually, this will advance into wireless telegraphy. First experimented by the RFC in 1912, basically, they would be using Morse code to tell them the positions of the guns. In fact, not basically, this was Morse code. The first wireless observation flight took place on the 18th of September. So add in this along with the other factors during these flight missions. These pilots were very courageous men with a very important job in the war now. A pilot on one of the early observation missions over Chemin de Doms described taking fire from Germans while flying at low altitude, saying, quote, A bullet from a rifle went through the back of my seat, through my leather flying coat, but was turned off by a steel rib in my Sam Brown belt, and I was none the worse except a bruised back. There are generally shots through our wings, but they do no harm. There are four pilots with whom I fly, all youngsters, but with good heads on their shoulders and unsurpassed in the air. I have not had an encounter with a German airman yet. Of course, one always has to be on the lookout for them, but I think they are a bit afraid of us and I don't worry at all. Captain Henry Jackson, 3rd Squadron, RFC, end quote. Some Brit pilots were a bit cocky at the start of the war, but soon the Huns will instill some fear into them. And not only from the air, but also from the ground. By the end of September, German anti-aircraft guns had become a major pain in the butt. The RFC pilots named the anti-aircraft guns Archies, short for Archibald, a monologue performed by artist George Roby regarding a nagging wife. Here's a short clip of the song. Please bear with the poor quality. Archibald, certainly not. Get back to work at once, sir, like a cop. When single, you could waste time fooling, but lose work now for honeymooning. Archibald, certainly not. Uncomfortable. The first pilot to use this term yelled, Archibald, certainly not, after a shell burst near his plane. The next step in aerial reconnaissance technology would be photography. Observers would take pictures of the guns when spotted, and the rest is pretty self-explanatory. By the end of the month, the BEF and the RFC, through coordinated efforts, could now effectively engage German artillery positions with their own artillery. The field of battle was starting to turn into an equal playing ground. But again, the BEF weren't the only ones with pilots flying these missions. The Germans also had pilots coordinating effective fire for their gun teams as well. A BEF soldier described seeing something that resembled a bomb falling from the air when a German plane passed by, saying, quote, Next morning, a German aeroplane, when immediately above our trench, let something fall, which we took to be a bomb as it appeared to be dropping right on top of us. It fell about halfway with a burst giving out a shower of silvery lights. This we afterwards found out was a signal to the German gunners as to the effect of their firing and accuracy of their aim. The shelling then became more accurate and the shells seemed to lift you up and drop you down again. So terrific was the concussion. Lance Corporal Edward Luther, 3rd Rifle Brigade, 17th Brigade, 6th Division, 3rd Corps, end quote. 
Hopefully you can see how crucial it was to get planes in the air during the Battle of the Aisne. Well, back on the ground at the River Aisne, the German attacks continued. The Huns needed a new plan since the Schlieffen failed at the Marne. Their strategy now was to pin down as many French and British forces as possible. After this, they would move north, then west to get around the Allied left flank and start the process of encirclement again. This is a big detail that I'm going to get back to shortly, so pause the German movement on that. As the fighting continued, the trenches continued to grow. Artillery bombardments kept pouring down, creating endless craters in the earth, something that would resemble a muddy, dirty moon. The men would make desperate attempts to rush through no man's land, charging enemy trenches. No man's land, if you don't know what this is, it's the dead space between the two lines of trenches, or the space where the dead piled up. And if you were killed, your dead body probably was going to be there to stay. Nobody's, nobody's going out there to bring you back. In almost all cases, nobody retrieved the dead from no man's land. It would be too dangerous. And why would they? You're already dead. The British accused the Germans of treachery and immoral conduct on the battlefield. They reported that the Germans would raise white flags to, to surrender, then fire on them, never having the intention on surrendering. One such incident took place on the 17th of September between a force of Huns and the 1st Northamptonshires on top of Chemende Dom's Ridge. The Germans had overtook part of the BEF's trench and the Tommies were ordered to retake it. As they fixed bayonets and charged the trench, they started taking heavy fire. They got down and took cover. This lasted about an hour. Then, multiple white handkerchiefs started being waved around by the Huns in the trench. One second lieutenant seemed puzzled by the sudden change of heart. After seeing their hands go up and firing stop, he too ordered his men to cease fire. He then called for an officer to meet him. When a private who spoke English came to the response, he went on to say, quote, On finding out that he was not an officer, I ordered him to return and have his officer replace him. A sergeant turned up next. He was also returned as not wanted, after which an officer materialized. He appeared to find great difficulty understanding me. I agreed to accept his surrender, but naturally ordered him to make his men lay down their arms. I saw a large number of enemy detached from their trenches before my arrangements were completed. Most of them had their rifles, many had not, and many had their hands up. I tried to make the Bosch officer understand that I would order my men to fire if his men continued to advance with their arms. The enemy continued to advance and the officer seemed willing to surrender, but couldn't grasp the idea of his men laying down arms. I found myself being surrounded by the advancing Germans. I could not afford to remain out in no man's land, which was rapidly being overwhelmed by the Huns. Second Lieutenant Lancelot Burlton, end quote. Lieutenant Burlton didn't want to order his men to open fire because many of the men had come with their hands up, with no rifles. Some of them even handed their rifles over to his men, he said it would have been dirty business to open fire on the men with arms because they didn't understand English. But the situation spun out of control and erupted into a vicious, bloody, hand-to-hand -hand battle in the middle of no man's land. Men were being stabbed, shot, punched, eyes gouged, bitten as they locked up in struggle. One Tommy beat a German's head to death with a buttstock of his rifle. The man's brain spilled out the skull. The end result was a slaughter. After a British machine gun team opened fire on about 100 plus of those Germans 
who were firing on the Tommies from a road. They were mowed down and obliterated. The rest of the Germans threw down the rifles and again tried to surrender. But the Tommies weren't having it this time. In fact, they only took one prisoner out of the several hundred estimated to have originally tried to surrender. The one prisoner they took was a trophy. One victim from the German fire was 2nd Lieutenant Cosmo Gordon, who up to this point had displayed nothing but courage and leadership towards his men. His death was witnessed by a lieutenant named Evelyn Needham, who said, quote, Gordon and I had been kneeling up trying to make out what was going on, and were still doing so when the Huns opened fire. Gordon, who was not a foot away from me, suddenly pitched forward on his face and yelled out, Oh my God, I'm hit. He writhed about on the ground in agony, and I tried to keep him quiet. He assured me again and again that he was shot through the stomach and that he was going to die. Poor devil. It was hell being able to do nothing for him and to see and hear him in such agony. I can only try to reassure him. We got poor Gordon on a stretcher. He made me promise to see that his sword was sent back to his family, and his Batman took it. They carried him off, and I never saw him again. Needham also went on to explain that he never really understood the situation and how the fighting broke out, saying, To this day, it is a mystery to me. Did the Germans really mean to surrender? But on getting down to A Company, to do so and finding so few men there, change their minds and try to reverse proceedings and take them prisoner? Or was the whole thing a put-up job? We shall never know. Lieutenant Evelyn Needham, end quote. As you might have guessed, I'm not an investigating forensic scientist, but I would say this was a classic misunderstanding due to a language barrier. Had either been fluent in the other language, this might not have happened. But unfortunately, this happened at the wrong place at the wrong time. German accounts make similar accusations saying the British troops failed to respect the white flag. Animosity is growing on both sides. In all the meanwhile, the troops in the trenches were still being shelled at an unprecedented level. Round after round were being loaded and shot, day and night, nonstop. A BEF officer hunkered down in a trench recalls what it was like, saying, quote, I wonder how many thousands of shrapnel bullets must have been fired at us during the last 24 hours. How long can it go on, I wonder, and how long can one's nerves stand it? Of course, one is safe enough as far as things go in the trench with cover, but it is the noise and the shock that tires one. A whistle and a bang, and a noise that sounds like a shower of hail as the shrapnel comes through the branches of the trees, and then all is over for a minute, and then at it again. Captain Charles Piet Patterson, 4th South Wales Borders, 3rd Brigade, 1st Division, 1st Corps. End quote. Yes, the troops had dug deeper in the trenches, but did that really protect them from the bigger artillery shells? I understand the shrapnel shells, but not a siege mortar or the bigger guns. I mean, look, if you're in the trench and one of those giant howitzers lands next to you, man, that's it. Life ends at that moment, maybe quicker than a snap of a finger, and you cease to exist. No trench will protect you from that big-ass round. Last episode, I talked about shell shock coming from the actual concussion of the artillery blast. Now, as these men were hunkered down in the trench taking round after round, signs of mental stress were becoming more apparent. 
Men will uncontrollably react to loud noises in many ways. One lieutenant describes his nerves when thinking about returning home, saying, quote, When I get home, I hope you will not take it amiss if I dive down under the sofa when the servant slams the attic door or fall down flat in New Street when I hear an errand boy whistle, as these things are rather apt to get on one's nerves. Lieutenant Roland Owen, 2nd Duke of Wellington's Regiment, 13 Brigade, 5th Division, 2nd Corps, end quote. And I'm almost done with my whiskey. I'd like to quote a little lighter, more happier story from a British signaler during these scary times. Something happened to him when he was out to make a nice gesture. He described the situation saying, quote, Decided to go up to the observation post with some provisions for the lads. Put a tin of jam, jam in each pocket, some bully, and carried an armful of bread. Got within a hundred yards of the position when it happened. Only heard a sudden roar and crash, then darkness descended. When I awoke, I found I was on the edge of a glorious shell hole. Several horses dead, a dispatch rider and his motorcycle in, ho in a horrible mess, and my bread well in the mud. I felt groggy on my feet, and I suddenly became aware of the wet, sticky feeling on my face and neck, which denotes blood. Where my wound was, I did not know. I had pain all over, and I was not sorry when I staggered into headquarters again. I was greeted with, Hello, Jack. What the hell have you been up to? I told him as best I could and said that I thought I must have lost a lot of blood as it was all over my tunic and neck. To my utter astonishment, he burst out laughing and asked me if I was going to learn the difference between jam and blood. I suppose it will be months before I hear the last of this. Signaler John Palmer, 118th Battery, 26th Brigade, RFA, 1st Division, 1st Corps. End quote. Now let's dim the light and darken up the mood again. Remember, the weather has changed. This wasn't the warm days back like in August. It was now cold and rainy. I want you to picture this scenario. Men are hunkered down in these muddy trenches. Rain continue to pour down on them. They're shivering. The shells keep coming. They can't light a fire to dry their clothes and get warm. They had no hot meals, no proper drinks. They could only eat bully beef, jam, and biscuits. And I'm sure those biscuits were soggy. One man said they didn't get colds or get sick, and it was because they were so dirty and greasy, their clothes became somewhat waterproof. But one thing they weren't protected from was trench foot. Trench foot is no joke. Google trench foot and you'll see what I mean. Some of the images are ghastly. It's caused by the feet's long exposure to damp, unsanitary, and cold conditions. Typically, trench foot only takes one to two days in such conditions to start setting in. If untreated, it would turn gangrenous. Wet feet is no joke. In the army, you take care of your feet. One of the number one priorities. Change your socks when you can, use foot powder, and air them doggies when possible and as much as possible. I'm sure there's some Vietnam vets that can tell you some horrors about trench foot. Why we're on the topic of gross, let's go back to those soggy biscuits. In my younger military days, I vowed to choke the piss out of Jimmy Dean if I ever saw him. Yes, the sausage guy. We were on our way to Panama for training, 
We in-flight rigged to jump into Panama on some crappy Panamanian DZ. The plane was jam-packed like sardines. And for some reason, they started handing out these Jimmy Dean meals. Well, the sandwiches were wet and soggy. And for some reason, it just grossed me out. Apparently, I wasn't the only one who got grossed out by the sandwiches. A chain reaction hit and dudes started throwing up going down the line. People were throwing up in barf bags left and right, and the smell was god-awful. couple dudes even got thrown up on. It was horrible. And needless to say, it was a long-ass flight, and Jimmy Dean was on my shit list for several years. I don't know. When I thought of the soggy biscuits in the trench, I thought about my soggy Jimmy Dean sandwiches. Now, by September 28th, the German attack started to settle down. And instead of joining with the French to start new offensives, they took advantage of this time to continue the improvement of their trench systems. But some higher-ups felt this was a mistake and poor decision-making. They saw the time when the guns started cooling down that the BEF should have taken the time to attack. And this is where I'm going to unpause that German movement. The Germans realized they weren't just going to punch through the British and French lines. They needed a new plan. This new plan will be known as the Race to the Sea. No, this doesn't pertain to any naval battle of the sort. This is about the two sides stretching the line from the River Aisne all the way up to the coast of Belgium. The German right flank said, let's circle the British left flank, get around them, and circle them, and we'll take them from both sides. However, every time they made a push right to swing around the BEF left, the Brits would counter it and stop them. This process took place all the way up through Belgium. I posted a picture on my Instagram of a map that showed the trench line, which had been dug during September and October of 1914. For those that don't have Instagram, here's how the trench line ended up. It ran below Mulhouse, going west, passing Verdun and Reims, then started going north after passing Soissons, then all the way up north, passing the towns of Albert, Arras, Ypres, then stopping at Newport. This was the race to the sea. The trench lines grew, became more fortified, and now the war looked like it wasn't going to end anytime soon. And I think this is why I got stuck on the Battle of the Aisne and why it took me three episodes. There's just so much that happened during this time. After the Battle of the Marne, the Schlieffen Plan failed, causing the pullback of the first and second armies, which ultimately created the first trenches. The British, after so many days of being slaughtered by the German superior artillery, found a way to combat the problem with airplanes. Then both sides stretched the line from the Aisne up to Flanders and Belgium. When we think of World War I, we think of trench fort warfare. And this all came about because of the Battle of the Aisne. And I'm going to start wrapping this up right here. For this episode's Great War recommendation, I'm going to recommend the book by Peter Hart titled Fire and Movement. Um, hey, excuse me. I'm trying to record a podcast here. <laughs> Sorry if you guys heard that beast cleaning himself in the background. Sorry, where was I? Um, the recommendation of the book by Peter Hart titled Fire and Movement. He's a British historian who's written over 15 books, an amazing author full of knowledge. Fire and Movement has been my sole research for the past four episodes. 
All the quotes come from Mr. Hart's time and research that he's delivered to us in his books, and I'm very thankful for historians like him. I recommend you grab a copy, which you can find on Amazon or eBay. I would like to thank everyone for their continued support. Again, you fans are amazing. If you could give the show a review, it would be much appreciated. You can follow me on Instagram at OTTGWpodcast and on Facebook. Please like and share. You can find the show on my website at www.OTTGWpodcast.com and on Spotify Radio, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Google Play Music, Google Podcast, and more. You can also email the show at OTTGWpodcast at gmail.com. Till the next episode. Take care, everyone.